As we begin our teaching this morning, and before we look into God's positive word for today, I'd like us to to begin by calling to our minds some not-so-positive words, emotions, attitudes, behaviors. And as as you see, and perhaps for some of us feel or think about these words, um, ask yourself the question, what are, what's one thing all of these words, these emotions, attitudes, and behaviors have in common? Okay, ready? Fear, worry, anxiety, bullying, anger, negativity. Defeated, discouraged, disillusioned, and maybe even disengaged. As you think about it, is it not true that underneath, behind, permeating every single one of these is probably a not-so-healthy dose of no confidence? My guess is that most of us here have had the experience of somebody just stripping us bare to the bones with words, running us up and down and into the ground with a tirade of anger. And when it's over, somebody, often a total stranger, will come slipping over and say, you know, I saw that. I wouldn't worry about it. I'm thinking she has a whole lot of insecurities. The number one thing we say about bullies is what? Oh, man, they are just very insecure people. And what is insecurity? Basically, a lack of confidence. As I was studying this week, I thought of a father experience I had with our our son as an emerging adult. Well, two experiences about the same issue. The the possibly life-altering matter of getting a job. He was going for his first real job interview, and he was, well, anxious, I would say which to me was actually both a good sign and possibly a bad sign, right? I'd I'd interviewed enough people to know that it's a bit of a caution flag if someone is overconfident, or at least appears that way, but at the same time, you want them to have just the the right kind of confidence and, and the right amount of confidence. And he was not there. And for a moment, it took me into that pit of doubt as a parent. Have I done my job well enough in helping him be a confident person? I was confident he could do the job he was applying for, but but was he? And would it show in the right kind of way? And if he didn't, was it my fault? He didn't ask my advice, and I had no idea whether he would be willing or able to receive it, but but I knew that he needed that locker room prep talk, those final words before you go out onto the court for the big game, that only I could give. I knew my son. He was a bit of an introvert. Unless he knew the situation well, he was, he was somewhat guarded. And I said, Mike, will you take it from me that I know the one thing that will give you an edge in this interview? I paused, not because I was waiting for him to say yes. I knew he wouldn't. I paused to allow him to get it over in his mind, get over in his mind that initial, what does dad know, reaction. I knew that at his age, dad didn't know much. And then... I said, Mike, I don't know if you'll get this job. And if you don't, I know there will be another one. 
But there's one thing you can do to make it hard to turn you down. And I paused again, and I said, just walk into that room with your shoulders back, your head up, smile on your face, look them in the eye, and say, hi, I'm Mike. Thanks for this opportunity. Okay, was that one thing, or was that pastor's one thing, like six things, right? Uh, Why? Because I wanted him to, to look confident. And yes, he got the job. Several years later, he's finished college, and although he has a backup plan, it was not a career step kind of job, and out of the blue, well, sort of, maybe he got a call, maybe, maybe there was a, some work behind the scenes that he didn't know about, but anyway, he got a call from a friend of ours who said, hey, Mike, welcome home. Would you have time for lunch tomorrow? And because he's now a college graduate, he's smart enough not to say, oh, I don't know, I don't know what I'll be doing tomorrow. He said, sure. And he came upstairs to my office and said, I just got a call from June. She wants to take me for lunch tomorrow. What do you think that's about? I said, well, I would guess it might have something to do with the job. I would say you need to assume she's going to offer you a job. Next morning, he got up earlier than usual, came upstairs into my office. And by this time, he's a little older, which means dad knows a little more than he did a few years ago. And he actually asked for my advice. He did. He asked for it. And I was ready, shoulders back, heads up. But then I heard what it was he was asking. So if this is a job interview, what should I wear? And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I am a good parent. (laughs) My son's asking me what he should wear. You see, the last time there was a major discussion in our house about what to wear was when he was about eight years old on a Sunday morning. He came out of his room. I was already at church, and, uh, and LaDonna course, did the mom thing, had his clothes laid out for him uh, to put on, nice chinos and a polo shirt. But he came out of his room and has said to her in a very definitive tone, I don't want to wear those pants with a crease. I want to wear jeans. The only reason you want me to wear those pants is because I'm a pastor's kid. LaDonna <laughs> <laughs> well, felt this pang in her heart, not because he wanted to wear jeans, but because we so desperately did not want our kids to have a negative experience with church because of us. And she laughed at him and she said, Mike, the reason you wear pressed pants with a crease is not because you're a pastor's kid, it's because your mom's a geek. And that's the last time you wore pants with a crease. That was pretty much the last line drawing discussion we'd had about clothes. And now he's asking me what to wear. And I said to him, well, it's got to have a collar. Can't be jeans. It's got to be something other than board shoes. And I knew I'd done my job because he didn't scoff at it. He said, how about a polo shirt? I said, check. And he said, I'm pretty sure I have some chinos. Uh, Would you iron them for me? I said, check. (laughs) But all I have is basketball shoes, board shoes, hiking boots. What do I do? I said, well, Mike, when you went off to college, we cleaned up your room. I happened to rescue that pair of dress shoes we bought for your high school grad for such a time as this. Why? Because I wanted him to look confident. The right amount of confident and the right kind of confident. Not just a confidence that says, if you don't take me like I am, shove it. That's an arrogant, self-centered, bluffing, insecurity kind of confidence, not genuine confidence. This morning, 
We're continuing in our letter by Paul to the church in the city of Philippi, a church that he had personally got started, but a church that's going through a pretty rough patch, and it's going to get worse. Paul knows it. They've embraced the, the good news of Jesus, of true life in him, but, but the life that they are now experiencing in the world around them is anything but smooth. On top of the normal ups and downs and challenges of life, they have three huge confidence-sucking forces threatening to take them out. First of all, the Roman Empire is increasingly clamping down on religions other than the secular religion of Rome, of Caesar. And being a, a gateway city, a, a, a colony, an official colony, city officials in Philippi want to show Rome they are a model city. And that means anybody who claims Jesus as Lord will be, well, marginalized at least, and persecuted is increasingly more likely. They have a second major confidence-draining circumstance. The Jewish religion, out of which Christianity was born, and in which Christianity at this time is still a sect, a, a subset, the Jewish religious leaders, one of whom used to be Paul, right? The Jewish religious leaders saw Jesus as their competition rather than the, the completion of God's plan that began after the fall. We're going to hear more of that in a little bit. The third factor was that Paul, the founder of their church, the one who pointed them to faith in Jesus and led them to believe that it was worth it to risk everything for Jesus, is now in prison. And so they're losing their confidence in three ways. Number one, they're beginning, to, they're beginning to doubt faith in Jesus. Is it real? Is it the way, the truth, the life? That's the challenge from Rome, especially with Paul in prison. But there was a subtle and in Paul's mind even more dangerous force. The Jewish leaders who made them doubt whether they were doing it right who made them want to, to add to their faith in Jesus, add to the gospel, what? Rules, rituals to make faith a matter of what I do rather than relying totally, resting confidently on what Jesus has done for me. And the fact that Paul is in prison is something these religious leaders are using to say, see, we told you. His message was, well, um, there's obviously some good in it, but at best it's incomplete. See what's happening to him? It didn't work for him. And these people in the church in Philippi are not just second-guessing their faith. They are also taking out their frustrations and their fears on each other. That's what happens, right? We take it out at home. The number one way our lack of confidence plays out is in our relationships. That's what happened, what's happening in Philippi. And so as we come to chapter 3, in the most passionate and, and most, well, let's say it, vulgar way, Paul gets downright expressive as he points them to the unlimited confidence that they have in the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't prob promise them that if they have enough faith, their situational situation will change. He talks about confidence in their situation. 
Let's look at Philippians 3. Would you uh, turn there? Philippians chapter 3, if you have a Bible app, it's, uh, just download it quickly if you don't have one. It's in the New Testament part of the Bible, the second half of the Bible. And um, we're going to read the first 11 verses this morning, walk through them. And, and as we read and listen, ask yourself what this tells you about the way you are going about looking for confidence and what the confidence is that your heart really is looking for. Begin to verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Further, or finally, as some of our translations have, further to what? Well, two things. What's the key verb, the key action word in this book? It's the word think. It's not the word rejoice, as we sometimes hear. The word think, a deep kind of thinking, a thinking that's called phreneo, coming from the, the, the concept of our diaphragm. It's, it's an internal, deep kind of thing that actually influences what we think about everything that happens to us. A mindset influenced by a heart set that controls what and how we think. When we think well, Paul's saying, we have, will have the kind of confidence that will produce a joy that is not dependent on circumstances. Further to what? Well, although I'm trying to arrange for you to have Epaphroditus and Timothy, as, as Dave talked about last week, mentors of theirs that have been interns with Paul in this city, I want to arrange for them to come. But even if they don't, you can still have joy. Rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's a turning point in the book, actually. This is not the first time he's talked about joy in this letter, but it's, it's the first time he's commanded it to be joyful. And it'll be a driving theme in the rest of the letter. We're not going to do a deep dive in this joy theme here because on the second Sunday of the Advent season, on December 9th, Dave, or Pastor Dave, is going to be teaching on unlimited joy from this book. So we won't go deeper into that today. The interesting thing to note, though, is that as soon as Paul gives this command to be joyful, he goes on into this, it's a rant, okay? A passionately visceral, downright vulgar rant about what it was that was robbing their joy, undermining the confidence that God wanted them to have through the gospel. It is no trouble, he says, for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Trouble? What does he mean? It's no trouble for me. What he's saying is, it doesn't bother me that I'm going to get pretty harsh and pretty vulgar, but I have no hesitance in saying this. This may hurt you when I say it, but it won't hurt me. You need to hear this, okay? That's what he's saying. I have no trouble saying this for the same, same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are, are, the, are we who are the circumcision, who serve by we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. How does he describe the way that we are that these people are being led to try to get confidence? He uses a particular word three times. 
It's the word flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. Which leads them to try to have confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. No confidence in the flesh. Flesh is one of those words that's used as a word picture in the, in the New Testament particularly. Flesh, especially in Paul's letters, is used in several different ways. Sometimes it's, it's used very literally and, and neutrally. Actually, not, you know, not negatively at all, but positively to talk about the body. The, the physical part of us as opposed to the inner, the spiritual, the, 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 or even the psychological dimension. Sometimes, like here, and quite often in Paul, it is used more negatively to talk about something that is self-driven, as opposed to being sourced from God, or as opposed to being spirit-driven. Anything that does not factor God into the equation, anything I can say or do based on my own physical and mental ability apart from God. That's flesh, which always has its limits. And it's when we push into these limits or when life puts us into those limits for us that we become worried, anxious, fearful, angry, all those words. But it's a special kind of self-confidence flesh confidence that makes Paul angry. It's a self-confidence that is rooted in religion. Well, not really rooted in religion. It's, it's rooted in the fall. And religion becomes a means, a thing I do to show that I can do life apart from what God has really done to give me the kind of confidence in what God desires for me the way he desires for me to live. And Paul brings up something that was very dear to the heart of the Jewish faith and a very central in the transition from the older covenant, the Old Testament, to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It's a practice that was commanded by God for his covenant people, but had been distorted by those people and was being used in this Philippian church to put a damper on the unlimited confidence that Paul has introduced them to in the gospel. So let's talk about it. It's the practice of circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin of the male genitalia, okay? To be clear, I'm sure you came in here this morning dying to hear about circumcision. But Paul has no trouble, he says, in talking about it. So let's talk about it. By the way, I invited Laura to preach this morning on this passage, but she declined. So here I am. Circumcision was a sign that God gave Abraham that the males of all people who were called God's people had to undergo as babies. It was clearly prescribed. If you want to read about that this afternoon... Genesis chapter 17. Just jot that down. Genesis 17. You can hear what it says. It's like, really? Is, is God a masochist or what? Now, circum some of these guys are sitting here saying, ouch. But anyway, um, <laughs> circumcision didn't originate with God and Abraham. Circumcision was actually something that had been practiced by a lot of people before God told Abraham about it. So one little factoid for you factoid buffs. Did you know that according to what's been discovered to this point in archaeology, 
that circumcision is the world's oldest planned surgical procedure. It actually predates recorded history. Over the years, it came to be associated with several things, but the the most common theory as to how it started is that it was performed on the soldiers of a defeated enemy as a permanent mark in their body of being a defeated person. A mark that would remind them of their defeat and at the most humiliating physical part of their body, their manhood, and yet still keep them alive as a slave. And if you think about it, that's sort of what God was getting at in implementing this practice as an essential mark for his people. For parents of young boys, what's the question when the circumcision issue comes up? It's all about, hmm, what's daddy look like? Number two, what are the, older, what are the, other, what are the other guys in the locker room going to look like as teenagers? Why is that such an issue? Everybody has different color skin. They all have different size, different shaped bodies. But it's our, it's our manhood. That's our manhood, right? And God's point was that as a sign that it is not about you. As a sign of submission to me because I have won. I have captured your heart. As a sign that you are my people owned forever by me. Take a piece of the flesh of your manhood. Cut it off. You are mine forever. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because you are more than your flesh. You are more than what you can do and be apart from me. You are more than what you can do with your manhood or your womanhood. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But even in the Older Testament, these people began to see and use circumcision as a, not as a sign of their relationship with God, their ownership by God, their submission to God, but that their relationship was based on it. The mark of a relationship with God became seen as the means to a relationship with God, which meant it is a self-driven work, which meant I did something. I've done it. I'm in. I'm okay. Look what I did. Look how much I gave up to gain God's favor and prove I'm somebody, and you're not. It's why even as the law after Abraham during the time of Moses, as the law was given to people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, read this. And now, now, his, and now Israel, what does the Lord require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your hearts. Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's this promise. The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul in order that you may live. The prophet Jeremiah, many years later, comes back and says, circumcise. he talks to circumcised people and he's saying, circumcise yourself to the Lord now. Circumcise your hearts. And in Jeremiah chapter 32, there's again a promise that someday God is going to do something to make this happen in reality. And when Jesus comes along, 
What does he do? Colossians chapter 2, just one page over in your Bible. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, in flesh. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off. When you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Jesus allowed his flesh not just a little piece of it, but his entire physical body, to be killed, to be defeated, to claim me to pay the price of my sin, which is, in any, which is any act that is short of total submission, complete trust, and worship of God. The mutilation of Jesus' body is a sign of his own surrender to God, submission to God, ownership by God, in order to circumcise our hearts for. God. That's what it all had pointed to all along. And now there was to be a new sign, no longer circumcision, but baptism, a sign that I have identified with the death of Jesus and have been raised to new light. Not as a way to get a relationship with God, but a way that I will publicly declare my relationship with God. And some of us this morning need to consider, hey, maybe I need to get baptized. Would you just text one of, your, one of the staff members and say, hey, just go on our website, text, hey, I need to think about baptized. Can we talk about it? Would you do that? Because we need a reminder for ourselves that, yes, I have submitted myself to God. In Acts chapter 15, in this time when when the, the, the old covenant, after Jesus died, the old covenant is gone and, the, and, and people are trying to figure this out, all out. There's this huge issue of do we have to get people circumcised in order to be part of this new faith? And, and they had a knockdown drag out on it. And in the end, they unanimously decided, no, we don't. Because it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. And now, as Paul leaves, those who come in and put it, as Paul's gone in prison, people have come in and put it back on the table, and Paul calls them dogs, which for Jews was the ultimate slanderous term. Dogs, not house pets. Mongrels who ran around, ran around collecting garbage, biting people, dirty, filthy, evildoers. It's like, so Paul, what do you really think, right? No, Paul says, don't get sucked into that because we, we are the circumcision. I think I've missed a couple of words there. Because we, because it is we, it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit. In other words, not from our old hearts, not from our own hearts, but from hearts that have been circumcised by God, owned by God, hearts that have been invaded and filled by God's Spirit that He gave us when we gave ourselves to Jesus. We are the circumcision who, because 
of that want to boast and give credit not to ourselves, but to our captain, our leader, our rescuer, our ultimate and only lover, Jesus. We are the circumcision who put no confidence in and therefore get no confidence from what we can do with our flesh from ourselves. This wasn't simply about a religious ritual to Paul. It was about an approach to life, all of life. Am I going to count on, hold up, trust in what I have done and what I can do? Am I going to base my confidence and ultimately my satisfaction and joy in life on who I am and what I'm being allowed to do, whether people notice it, all that stuff? Because if I do, I will come short before God and I will tend towards discouragement, Frustration, cynicism, negativity, bullying, all those things. Or I will live in denial and everybody else will see it. Or will I base my confidence on something God, by His Spirit, through Jesus, has done for me, wants to give me, invites me into, and all I have to say is, whoa, I don't deserve this, but I will take what you give and I will give you all I am and have. I am yours and you are mine. Now, Paul is passionate about this for several reasons. Number one, because he clearly got the message of Jesus, not while Jesus was alive, but after. He got that message when he was doing the very things to the church of Jesus that these teachers are doing to screw up the people in Philippi. When Paul's in prison, no wonder he's passionate about it, but he's also passionate for another reason, because he had very clearly lived this old way. He was one who could pull it off better than anyone. He had the credentials and the credits to prove it. He had the pedigree and the personal track record to show what this life did. He talks about that pedigree, middle of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I'll, get, I'll put myself up against them any day. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, not just the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That was me. That's my pedigree. That's what I'm from. And not only did he have the pedigree, but he took that pedigree and he worked it. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I did everything perfectly right. As for zeal, Devotion? Whew. I persecuted the church who was destroying, doing away with this old way of life. As for righteousness based on the law, totally blameless. And what did it make me into? An angry, bullying, driven policeman. Whoops, not not all policemen are. That's not what I'm saying. Sorry about that. It's what we all tend to drift back to, right? When things aren't happening to us the way we think they should be for us, or when things are happening to us, we want to feel self-satisfied about it, and we tend to lose our joy, put our confidence in the wrong thing, or think we're doing the wrong thing, or worried that it's not going to happen tomorrow, even though it happened today. So how might God be signaling to you? Letting, just, just let go of your need to be right 
Let go of your need to have it your way, to deal with your anger, your anxiety, your negativity by allowing your heart to be claimed and filled with the fullness of Jesus by his Spirit. So I have a suggestion for us to, to, to work this idea into that underneath, that, that frontal level of our thinking, our mindset, our attitudes. It's a very concrete, practical suggestion. I would, have, I would suggest that let's remove from our vocabulary for, for an entire year, okay, just a whole year, remove from our vocabulary the term self-confidence, Okay? I don't know if you caught it, but when I shared about my desire for my son, I didn't say I wanted him to have self-confidence. I, I, I just said I wanted him to be a confident person. So what do we mean when we say self-confidence? I, I think on the, 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 the positive side of it is we mean we want to have and we want our kids to have a, a, an internal, something internal, not something derived from dysfunctional attachment to or loyalty to an abusive person or system. Not something based on comparing ourselves to others and having to put them down together. We, we want something internal. But just because it's internal does not mean it has to be self-oriented, self-rooted, or self-sourced. Now, Apart from God, you can't really talk about an internally rooted confidence without talking about self-confidence, right? But that's such a confusing term when we factor God into the equation. So just simply as a, as a signal to our hearts, as a signal to us to work on that frontal level of thinking, just as a mental signal, why don't we take self-confidence? As soon as we, every time we hear that word, we say, no, no, not self-confidence. I want to have a circumcised confidence. Say it out loud. Circumcised confidence. You can say it. Circumcised. Yes, we can do it. Right? You don't have to say it out loud to people. But, but, but say, it, say, it, say it to yourself. No, I want to be confident because of the person who has filled me with his fullness by his spirit. And now Paul comes to, to where he started. Rejoice in the Lord. He's, he's off his rant, and he comes back to what he wants to talk about. And, and he tells us just basically what we need to do to get and maintain that confidence. It's simply to allow and to, to teach myself to believe that my rootedness in Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, is, is all I need as a foundation for confidence. That's what to rejoice in the Lord means. Joy is not an emotion that is self-generated. It's actually not an emotion. It's a, it's a deep down internal attitude. For now, it's an internal condition, not a circumstance-related feeling. We get it and developing it by, by allowing the truth of what happened to me through the gospel affect everything I see, everything. Joy. It's a really key sign of a gospel-rooted confidence, okay? And so how do I grow in that confidence? Well, when I notice the seg negative signals coming on or coming out, I, I need to ask myself, what is it I'm wanting or demanding that I need to see, that, 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 that I need to look at and say, you know what, I don't need that. I have Jesus. Verse 7, verses 7 to 9, listen to this. Whatever... 
things were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What, what is, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost every single thing. He's got two word pictures here. He goes on to say, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So there's two word pictures. Number one, there's the word picture of loss, which is, which is an accounting term. It's, it's ledger type stuff. He says, if, if, if there's something that happens that I think I need to lift me up, to pump me up, to build me up, I consciously put that in the loss column. The lost side of the agenda of the the ledger in my mind, because it is literally a liability. It is eroding the confidence I have in my foundation, in my awareness, and my fullness in Jesus. To put it in the lost column is to say, you know what? That's nice, but it's not necessary. I've got Jesus. There's an even stronger word he uses. I not only put it in the lost column, I consider it to be garbage, or some of our translations use dung. Now that's how modern versions translate this word to make it readable in church. Okay, The word here is skabala, skabala, a very earthy and vulgar term. It's a term that if camels had, if camels had, had bumper stickers on their butts, they would have read skabala happens. Okay, get what I'm saying? I consider everything that I have lost, relatively speaking, Paul had lost a lot, status, probably, uh, income, a family inheritance, all that stuff, skavala, compared to the value of knowing Jesus. It was, it was the concern that my mentor had. I've, I've shared with you, when I was 22 years old, my first collapsed lung, I was laying in the ICU, and I said, this shouldn't happen to me. I, I, I'm... My body's never failed me. I'm an athlete. Went on talking, and finally he said, Mel, maybe this is happening because it sounds to me like you're counting an awful lot on your body. There's an awful lot more to count on, Mel. I've never, I've never forgot that. That's what happens. Letting go of all the need for whatever it is I think I need that I'm using to, 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 to get confidence and to build my confidence. That's the foundation. And how do I build on that? Well, simply pursue knowing Jesus more in and through it all. I want to know, he says, the power of his resurrection. He's not talking about doing powerful things like miracles. He's talking about the internal confidence, the powerful confidence that nothing can shake me, nothing can move me, nothing can be taken away from me that will trip me up or take me out. I am strong in him. Isaiah 40, those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength, rise on wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. That's the power of the resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's a harder one. What Paul is saying is that I am willing to lose everything, even my life, be hurt by anything in any way, because I know that it's through these things that I can grow in the closeness of Jesus. LaDonna and I are in the process of getting to know uh, a couple with, with whom we, we sort of had this sense of connection and, and before even really getting to know them. And as we got to know each other's stories, we realized that both of us have experienced pain and hurt in the very same kind of way. 
There's a bond. And Paul says, if I want to experience a relationship with Jesus, I need to be willing to be hurt by life, tested like Jesus, and in that, to connect with him on a deeper level. He is there. He is there with you. He is there for you. He is there to be a friend to you. There's another Jewish follower of Jesus. Many centuries after Paul, a survivor of a Holocaust concentration camp, having lost family members in that camp, Corrie Ten Boom, who struggled with bitterness and anger at her tormentors, but ultimately and personally came to a point of forgiveness for them, puts it in a very simple but powerful perspective. If you look at the world and count on the world, you'll be distressed. If you look inside of yourself, you'll be depressed. If you look to Jesus, you'll be at rest. Self-confidence? No, it's way richer, more powerful, more enduring than that. It's what we have in unlimited capacity in Jesus. It's not a zap kind of thing that comes over you. It's a journey deeper into and higher on the foundation of a circumcised heart claimed and owned and filled by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King of our hearts, Captain of our salvation, brother and friend, we confess our flesh-driven tendencies. And thank you that we can live in restful, humble confidence of the fullness of your Spirit from hearts that have been captured and owned by your amazing love. Thank you for not letting us go. We give ourselves to coming back into that rest, even as we hit our week this week. In Jesus' wonderful, beautiful, powerful, glorious name, all of God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together and sing.